0: This is Sam of Explaining. a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms, and if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page, the link is in the description. I'm also planning soon, together with my producer Dan, to record and post my first video lecture, which after the vote of my current active patrons will be on a survey of Western architecture. So be alert to that. It hopefully will be coming out soon. So this lecture will be the next installment in the history of the United States in 100 Objects, number 21, the Braddock Washington Pistol. And this lecture will be brought to you by the letter D. So what is this object, the Braddock Washington pistol? It is a muzzle-loading, 71-caliber flintlock pistol made of wood with brass fixtures. It's about 16 inches long from the muzzle to the butt on the end of the handle. It was most likely made in England around 1750, handmade and hand-decorated. It is inscribed with the name Gabitas, presumably the name of the armorer who made it, and the initials EB, presumably for its one-time owner, General Edward Braddock. It is today in the collection of the Smithsonian Institution, specifically at the National Museum of American History in Washington. So this pistol, it is, I believe, the second firearm I've spoken about in this whole series and it stands out as something special and unusual. It's remarkable for one thing simply as a work of art and craftsmanship, an exceptionally beautiful and finely finished sidearm. But it is mainly noteworthy because of its association with the people who owned it, not only General Braddock, but also George Washington. And it's really for this reason that this pistol came into the Smithsonian's collection. But first, to just understand what the object is, It is made mainly of dark reddish-brown wood, possibly walnut, which is highly polished. Most of the barrel, the side plates, and the butt at the handle end of the gun are made of brass, which is decorated and incised with dental pattern borders and rosettes. The flintlock mechanism over the middle of the pistol is made of dark metal, most likely iron. How would a weapon like this have functioned? How would it have been used? Well, it would have been mainly symbolic and decorative, more than for use as an actual weapon. The mechanisms of a flintlock pistol, as they were built in the 18th century, were fairly unreliable, and they could often fail to fire for various reasons, including moisture, dampness, the failure to actually set off was called a flash in the pan, that's where that term comes from, and they generally could not be aimed precisely either. So this was a pistol that almost certainly did not have riflery, meaning grooves, inscribed into the inside of the barrel. And that meant that a bullet or a musket ball would fire out and it might bounce around, deflect on its way, come out with different sorts of spin, and have a very unpredictable trajectory after firing out of the muzzle. Hence, as a result, a pistol like this was not very good as a long range or long distance weapon rather long guns including muskets and especially rifles were much better for that purpose but also at the same time a pistol like this was not very good for close combat either it took time to muzzle load the ammunition into the pistol and then fire it. And if someone was attacking you at close range, you simply didn't have the time to deal with that. And in fact, a bayonet or even a sword was much more effective at close range combat. And so hence, it wasn't really a great weapon under any circumstances. And really, a pistol like this was mainly commissioned for its symbolic value as a status symbol, as a very expensive hand weapon that one could holster at one's side or in one's coat and carry around, almost in the manner of a medal or fine clothes or jewelry. And this is almost certainly true of this highly decorative sidearm. Now, there is a partial exception to this, which is that this type of pistol, this large, long flintlock pistol, is of the sort that was customarily used for dueling. And the practice of dueling became somewhat common In the 1700s and early 1800s, it took on the form of a sort of dangerous pastime for high-status gentlemen. And pistols were sometimes made in pairs, specifically for use in dueling, in order to create a fair fight. One might create a pair of identical pistols, and then the owner would offer them to one's opponent for the other man in the duel to choose whichever weapon he preferred. And that was a way of ensuring a fair contest. And as dueling pistols became popular, those made in continental Europe usually had rifling in the barrel to allow for more precise aim and to enable a real deadly contest of shooting skill between two men. In contrast, those made in England, including this one, which almost certainly was made in England, were usually smoothbore, meaning that the path of the bullet was unpredictable. And in the English speaking world, this was considered preferable because that unpredictability allowed for the will of God to intervene and decide the outcome of the contest. With this particular pistol, it's unclear whether this was the exact purpose, maybe if it was originally envisioned as a dueling pistol. That is a possibility. But regardless, it's clear that it certainly became a status symbol with not only status, but also political meanings. So to understand that, we have to turn to the history of this item. Where did it come from, where did it go, and what became of it? So as we mentioned, the maker of this pistol was most likely named Gabitas, G-A-B-B-I-T-A-S which is inscribed into the side of the body of the pistol. Who is this? Well, the name Gabitas is somewhat rare, but it is of Norman French origin, and it is found in England, most especially in Nottinghamshire, in the interior northwest of England. So if this is the maker, one of course has to ask, was there a known armorer in the 1700s in England named Gabitas? And in fact, yes, there is evidence of one. For instance, there are records of a gunsmith named William Gabitas working in Bristol, England, a large port city in the southwest of England. And according to the Bristol Archives, in 1768, William Gabitas took over the lease for a set of four pieces of property located in Tower Lane, a narrow, twisting lane in the old city of Bristol, right near the medieval castle. And in these lease records, he is specifically named as being a gunsmith. Furthermore, according to church records from a few years later, in the village of Deerham, Gloucestershire, near Bristol, there is another reference to William Gabitas, So no clear definite record of this gunsmith's birth or parentage has been found. But in 1774, William Gabitas married Mary Toghill in the village of Deerham, And this was almost certainly the same William Gabitas who was a gunsmith in Bristol because his bride's brother was named Moses Toghill, which is another very unusual name. And then Moses Toghill is named as one of the partners who later took over the lease on that same set of properties in Tower Lane, Bristol. So hence what we can say from piecing together these records is that there was a gunsmith named William Gabitas who took up possession of a space probably for workshops in Bristol in 1768 and then got married in a nearby small town six years later in 1774. And the woman that he married was a young lady of about 25 or 26 years old. Now these facts suggest that William Gabitas was a young man just starting out in business on his own as a gunsmith in 1768. If this is true, then he cannot be the maker of this pistol that we've been speaking about which certainly existed by no later than 1754 at the latest. However, we may still be close to the mark because highly skilled trades like gunsmithing often passed down in families. And so if William Gabitas in Bristol was a gunsmith, it makes sense that perhaps the maker of this pistol that we're talking about might have been his father or his uncle, who then passed the business down to him. And furthermore, the commercial records from the same city of Bristol also show that a William Gabitas was the co-owner of a privateer ship called the Triton, which went out on a voyage in 1758, and he also was the co-owner of a slaving ship in 1763. And this is the sort of thing that wealthy, successful artisans in their mature years would often do. They would take some of their capital and invest it in mercantile ventures. And so perhaps it might be that this elder William Gabitas, who was already something of a wealthy man in Bristol by 1758, he may possibly have been the gunsmith that we're looking for, who made this particular pistol. It's possible, but we don't know for sure. So if we say it looks very likely that this pistol was in fact made by a highly skilled craftsman named Gabitas in Bristol, England, How then did it end up in America, where it resides today? Well, it seems that it came over to the American colonies in the possession of Edward Braddock, who had his initials inscribed into the barrel. So who is Edward Braddock? He was an Englishman born in 1695, and he was the son of the commander of the Coldstream Guards, which is an old elite corps in the English and later British army which was tasked partly with protecting the British monarch. Edward followed in his father's footsteps by entering the army, and he rose quickly through the ranks, eventually replacing his father as the commander of the Coldstream Guards. And in 1754, he received the rank of major general. Now, it happens that in that very same year of 1754, a skirmish broke out between British and French colonial militia detachments in the upper Ohio Valley, basically the area that's now western Pennsylvania and on the northern slopes of the Allegheny Mountains. This is an area where two empires, the British and the French, that had long been expanding into the interior of the continent, began to converge, and it became a zone of contention between these two powers and turned out, in fact, to be a tinderbox. In the spring of 1754, the British sent a corps to try to build a fort at the Ohio Forks, basically the point of land where the Monongahela and the Allegheny Rivers converge and form the Ohio. This was an important strategic point for controlling all of those waterways. When they approached, they found out that they had already been preempted by a French expedition. And so, subsequently, the British then sent a small military force of about 150 men under the command of a young colonial lieutenant colonel of the Virginia militia named George Washington and sent them to set out through the Alleghenies. On their way, they encamped close to the River Fork. While encamped, they received reports of a small French scouting group coming very near their position and possibly they felt threatened. Hence, they sent a small detachment, a raiding party of Virginian volunteers, under George Washington's command, to set out at night and search for this French group. They found the French team ensconced in a small glen, and they attacked them, killing ten people, including an ambassador named Jumonville. The exact events of this fight were then disputed for decades afterward. It's unclear what happened or who was responsible for this outbreak of combat and for these deaths. It was disputed whether either side had hailed or acknowledged the other before fighting broke out. It was disputed who fired first, and it was disputed as to whether the British forces had fired on and killed wounded Frenchmen on the ground. So this was a subject of controversy and uncertainty really for the rest of the lives of everyone who survived. But regardless, after this initial firefight and killing of 10 Frenchmen, the British then had to suddenly retreat, knowing that French retaliation would soon be on the way. They fell back and hastily built a primitive fortress called Fort Necessity, which shortly after they were then forced to surrender to the French. And the uproar over this frontier fight in the Alleghenies led to the early rumblings of war. And as tensions escalated, Britain dispatched General Braddock to America. And reportedly, Braddock brought with him this particular firearm that we have been talking about. According to the book titled Ill-Starred General, Braddock of the Coldstream Guards, which was published in 1958 by a Baltimore journalist named Lima Cardell, Braddock's personal servant named Bishop had a variety of duties on this expedition to America with General Braddock, including that Bishop, quote, would look to the General's pistols, a beautiful pair of brass-fitted flintlocks, officer's lightweight holster pistols made by Gabitas, a Bristol gunsmith. Their shining eight-inch brass barrels, belled toward the muzzle, were set in polished walnut stocks. Engraved on the monoplate of each were the General's initials. EB must have cost at least eight or 12 pounds for the pair. And that's the equivalent to several thousand dollars in today's money. Now, the author of this book that I just quoted, Lee McCardle, does not cite his sources. But if what he says in this book is true, this demonstrates the tremendous value of these pistols. It also shows, moreover, that this one that we've been talking about was part of a pair. And that further suggests that these were dueling pistols. And this makes sense given what we know about General Braddock, such as the fact that Braddock was known to have fought in a duel in Hyde Park in London when he was 23 years old in 1718. So it makes sense this might have been the sort of status item he was interested in. Now as it turned out, Braddock's mission to America went notoriously poorly. So shortly after arriving in the colonies, he held a famous summit of British officers and colonial militia officers in the salon of a private mansion in Alexandria, Virginia, which also happened to be George Washington's hometown. And it seems that the two of them formed a sort of mentor-mentee relationship very quickly. At this summit, General Braddock insisted on an aggressive, preemptive, full frontal attack on New France. It would be a multi-pronged campaign with forces marching forward against the entire string of French forts guarding the frontiers of New France in what's now upper New York and New England. Braddock himself, furthermore, would lead a large column of troops through the mountains and forests, hoping to approach and ambush the French fortress at the Forks of the Ohio, basically the site that is today Pittsburgh. With this column would be a Corps of Virginia volunteers led by George Washington. On July 9, 1754, this column as it advanced was unexpectedly intercepted along the way by French and Indian allied forces. The British tried to fight back against them, but the column was quickly trapped, surrounded, and caught in deadly crossfire. Braddock repeatedly tried to rally the British troops and counterattack, but in the process, Braddock was shot in the chest and fell. The remaining British forces broke and fled. General Braddock himself was then borne off the field by a soldier. He later died in the camp a few days later on July 13th. He was buried and reportedly the religious service at his burial was presided over because the chaplain also was wounded and unwell. It was presided over by George Washington. Reportedly, on his deathbed, General Braddock gave to Washington his ceremonial officer's sash, and his pair of pistols. Soon after, the disastrous defeat of Braddock's campaign further led to a long, bloody war between Britain and France, which involved colonies and naval forces all around the world, and which has come to be called the Seven Years' War, or specifically to Anglo-Americans, the so-called French and Indian War. Meanwhile, it seems George Washington took this sash that he had received from General Braddock with him everywhere he went. It remained in his personal possessions and is still today in the collection at Mount Vernon in Virginia. This fact shows how much Americans, especially aspiring, striving Americans like Washington, tried to emulate British officers, very much desired and valued acknowledgement, approval, and inclusion from British officers, and it happens that in many instances the lack of acknowledgement and appreciation from the British commanders led to conflict, tension, and alienation in many cases between Britons and British Americans. George Washington was unusual in that he was able to receive this sort of special mark of approval, albeit in an unofficial way, from General Braddock, and he greatly valued this all through the rest of his life. Moreover, there is clear evidence showing that George Washington kept at least one of the pistols that he reportedly received from Braddock, and that he continued to carry it with him during the Revolutionary War 20 years later. So on July 2, 1777, in the midst of the Revolutionary War, General Washington's secretary sent a hurried letter to Captain Charles Morley, which said, quote, Sir, His Excellency General Washington desires you to look among his effects for a pistol which was mislaid or possibly lost. You will know it by being a large brass barrel and the lock of which is also of brass with the name of Gabitas, the Spanish armorer thereon. It has also a heavy brass butt. His Excellency is much exercised over the loss of this pistol, it being given him by General Braddock. And having since been with him through several campaigns, and he therefore values it very highly. End quote. So, hence, as ironic as it might seem, Washington clearly treasured and prized this gun as a sign of his rise to power and success. And it can be seen even as a kind of talisman representing the passing of leadership, the passing of the mantle, from this very senior British officer, the commander of the Coldstream Guards to George Washington himself. And this is true even though, ironically, Washington was engaged at that moment in a massive rebellion against Great Britain. And this illustrates, I think, how contradictory and really fratricidal the Revolutionary War was. And as some historians have pointed out, the Revolutionary War was really more of a civil war than the Civil War. Now, For whatever reason, which I have not been able to determine, this pistol did not end up remaining in the Mount Vernon collection with Washington's personal possessions. Somehow it was passed on to someone else or sold off, and eventually it got into the Smithsonian collection. I don't know how this came about, and unfortunately, the National Museum of American History has not responded to my inquiries. But it does make sense, all in all, that it is there because of what it encapsulates and symbolizes about the very complicated, rapidly changing relationship between Britain and the American colonies, which had for a long time had tensions and contending goals and interests, but which only really began to rupture in the 1760s because of the Seven Years' War, because of these anxieties and jealousies about status and titles and the difference in power between British and American officers, which then, of course, really blew up into open conflict after the end of the war with acts like the Stamp Act trying to extract wealth from the colonies to pay off the enormous war debt. So the pistol in this way, you could say, represents a sort of last lost possibility, a last shred of the close bond and affinity between Britain and its colonies, which then broke down in the following years. So I'd like to give special thanks to Eric Gabitas, the direct descendant of the gunsmith, William Gabitas, who presently lives in London, England, for his help with the genealogy of his ancestors, the Bristol archives in Bristol, England, and finally, of course, the letter D, and more specifically, my current active patrons, whose names begin with D. Don Gittick, Dan Hernandez, Dan Solomon, Daniel Tobin, David Aslanian, David C. Lavery, David J.J. Newsom, David Whitworth, Deborah Bazis, Deborah Webster, Doug Borowski, and Douglas Horgan. Thank you.